From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father John Tregilio. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Monday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Father John Tregilio is in the starting blocks ready to go. Uh, Pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. You can always send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams. Charles Beery is our celebrity producer today. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host is he is every Monday, Father John Tregilio. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Um, so, <laughs> I have an email here, Uh-oh. and it's from David in Mesa, Arizona, and the email starts out with, here are some questions I have regarding the liturgy, uh-huh. and it is followed by two and a half pages <laughs> of bullet points at eight-point font. <laughs> so Whoa. this is a new feature on EWTN's Open Line Monday. It's David from Mesa's question of the day about the liturgy. So we're just we'll start at the beginning and we'll just roll through them over the next three years. Um, <laughs> question number one is: Does the cross used in the entrance procession have to have Christ crucified on it, or can it just be a bare cross? Well, it it can be a bare cross. Um, as long as there is a crucifix uh, in the sanctuary, uh, it's recommended that it be one on the altar. And I know some churches, they use the processional cross as the crucifix. So if that's the case, then there must be a crucifix on it. But um, in many cases, um, particularly like when you're in archdiocese, they have what they call the archiepiscopal cross, which is the typical cross with an extra beam above the, the uh, horizontal one just to designate that that's an archbishop. The Pope would have three uh, on, on his cross, but uh, it's only obligatory if that's going to be the uh, crucifixion cross uh, in the sanctuary. Cindy writes in, My question is, how culpable are Catholics who donate money to charities which use the donations to promote contraceptions, abortions, and LGBTQ agenda or other grave evils which are diametrically opposed to the Catholic teachings. Should every Catholic attempt to research every charity? You should do some research, especially if you're going to contribute a substantial amount of money. But even if you're going to just give a little bit, it's still, uh, you don't want to be what we call a material cooperator in evil. Formal cooperation in evil is when you agree with the bad things that are being done. So obviously that's always a sin. So if you want abortions done or if you want... Uh, contraception being used, then that's always wrong. But you could be a material cooperator, which means you may not agree with, but you're still s- supplying 
uh, the means for that to be done. And uh, that's why we tell people to look into not just when they're making donations, but even some of their investments. And you must be prudent in trying to find out what you can. Now, some uh, when you get into these more complicated financial uh, arrangements where there's a subsidiary of a subsidiary of a subsidiary, you get into what we then call uh, remote um, cooperate, material cooperation evil, and then the culpability begins to decrease. But you should look into whatever you're giving money uh, to a charity. Because I remember there were when I was a kid, um, you know, I, I forget I mean, it was United Way or something. At that time, uh, we were told to you know be more circumspect. Um, got a, a question here from Isabel. Dear Father, is there a rule about leaving children in your last will? Isn't it uncharitable to omit inheritance to one child because of bad behavior, or is it best to leave equal amounts to each of the three <laughs> children to avoid bad outcomes between the siblings once you're deceased? <laughs> Let me tell you, being Italian and Polish, that... <laughs> That that's World War Eight right there. <laughs> they fight and they scream over the car, the house, the quilt, uh, who got what. But morally speaking, you are allowed to do with your money what you wish. You can give it all to the kids equally. You can you know reward the ones who took care of you. My experience has been usually one or maybe two of many uh, children to help take care of mom and dad. Uh, whoever's done the most work, I would say, should get the bulk. Um, you know, if you if you're t- if the person's taking care of mom and dad in their later years and, and around the clock, you know, uh, I would put them in the will for the whole house and everything else. You're not morally bound to do that, though. You can give it out equally. You can give it to nobody. Uh, you're not bound because if they're full-grown adults. Now, if you've got children who are minors, they're not able to take care of themselves, yes, then you have a moral obligation as the parent to leave money so that they can be uh, taken care of. But again, it's not necessarily that it was equal across the board, but you want to be reasonable about it. But again, my experience has been when I've got prisoners who passed away, um, their kids were all adults. They were uh, well into their, um, past their prime, so to speak. And uh, you do with it as you like. You know, there's a famous episode of Mother Angelica Live where she received a phone call from a woman who was bickering with her sister after her mother's passing over a, I kid you not, a jeweled commode. And Mother Angelica said, right at the top of the list of things that I am not going to hell for, it's a commode. <laughs> I saw Winston Churchill's gold toilet when Father Pickens and I were in England some years back. <laughs> Oh, goodness gracious. Um, 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Um, Vince writes in, Dear Father John, I've been having a difficult time finding a sponsor at the church that I go to in Columbus, Ohio. As far as I know, you need a sponsor to join RCIA. What should I do? Okay, well, um, yes, you should have a sponsor. And your sponsor um, does not necessarily have to be, but is normally the person who's going to be your uh, what we would say, godparent, if you're going to be uh, baptized or your sponsor for confirmation. That person has to be a practicing Catholic, at least 16 years of age or older. They themselves need to be baptized, confirmed, receive their Holy Communion, and uh, be validly married if, if, they're, if they are married and that they go to church. Um, if you cannot find one, 
uh, please talk to the, the, the pastor, the, the parochial vicar, the deacon, whoever's in charge of the RCIA, because I've had that happen to me when I was pastor for 16 years. We have parishioners who would make themselves available as uh, a sponsor. Uh, sometimes someone would want to be a sponsor, but they live too far away. Uh, you know, we call proxy. Uh, that person can then actually be in the book as the sponsor, but you need someone to be with you uh, during the classes and all the other uh, activities. So, yes, someone can can step up to the plate and do that for you. So I would definitely speak to whoever's running the RCIA uh, in your parish. And if you don't get any satisfaction, call the Diocese of, of Columbus. Uh, they got an excellent, excellent bishop there. Um, you know, Father Regenti is now the vice rector at uh, Josephinum. Um, it's a wonderful diocese. 833-288-EWTN. Uh, Stephen writes in, Good afternoon. How certain are we that the remains of St. James, son of Zebedee, are buried at the Cathedral of Santiago de Compostela? <laughs> um, I think we got moral certitude. I don't know if it's <laughs> metaphysical certitude. Uh, certainly, a lot of the relics that we have, they're most likely probably... The ones that we have some more concrete or even you know metaphysical certainty would be like uh, of St. Peter uh, there in Rome because extensive uh, research has been done, but also miracles have been attributed to uh, those relics. And uh, but that's you know we our faith isn't on things; it's on uh, uh, the persons of the Trinity. That's why if someone were to later find and say, "Oh, that's really not St. James; it's someone else," our faith would not be shaken. Because it's not built on that. These are meant to be uh, boosters, uh, affirmations, but they're not the content of faith. The resurrection is. Straight ahead, we're going to talk to Sylvia in California, Tyler in Sheridan, Wyoming, Miranda in the great state of Missouri, and we've got plenty of time for your phone calls as well. Pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-EWTN. 3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. That number is 1 205 271 2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1 205 271 2985. It's EWTN's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. You know, if you're listening to us on a local AM or FM radio station, thank those folks for going through all they go through on a day-in, day-out basis to make sure that signal is there for you. 
And if you maybe don't have a Catholic radio station in your area, we would love to talk to you about what steps you might take uh, towards playing a role in making that happen. If you'd like to learn more, simply send Steve Splonskowski an email. That email address is radio at EWTN.com. And just put attention Steve in the subject line, and we will get it on to him. First up today is Sylvia in the great state of California, watching us on EWTN television today. Sylvia, thanks so much for holding. You are on with Father John. Okay. Hello. Hello. Yeah, um, I'm still here, Sylvia Jones. Yes, what's your question, (laughs) Sylvia? Yeah, Yeah, my question is, okay, when you die, where you go, in heaven or hell? Because they said if you're bad, in hell. And then if you're good, in heaven. So what really good? I mean, really, but the kid, they said, is in heaven for sure because they're angels. So do you know where in Bible we read that or what is, you know, (laughs) where you go when you die? (laughs) Okay, um, yes, uh, if, if you die in the state of moral sin, unfortunately, that's the worst case scenario, then you end up in hell because you've severed your lifeline. You've you've um, cut your ties uh, with the life of grace, and that's why we call it mortal sin because you're dead in the life of grace, and uh, you end up in hell. But uh, if you're uh, not in the state of mortal sin, uh, you can uh, theoretically go straight to heaven, or as in many cases, you go to purgatory, which prepares you for heaven. Everybody in purgatory is definitely, absolutely, positively going to go to heaven, they just need uh, some time, a state of purification, uh, and that gets them ready uh, for the um, beatific vision. And all through Scripture, you see references to, um, you know, Jesus talking about uh, beware, you know, uh, of the place where uh, there's wine, uh, wailing and grinding of teeth, Gehenna, the fire dies not, the worm dies not. So there are so many references to the reality of hell, but also the reality of heaven, and we have to want heaven so much, so bad, we'll do anything to get there. It's not just a foregone conclusion. We don't believe in universalism. that Everybody is de facto going. But we do believe that you know, we have a merciful God who will forgive us if we're truly sorry. But once you die, your will is frozen. So you can't wait until after death to be sorry for your sins. You've got to do it right now. And that's why as a Catholic, it's good to go to confession often and regularly. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Tyler's a first-time caller in Sheridan, Wyoming, listening on KHNA Radio. Tyler, you're on with Father Trujillo. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I was talking with another English teacher the other day, and um, we had a question about the Our Father and the use of but um, at the end, um, but deliver us from evil. Um, the the prayer uses and repeatedly up until that point. So why does it switch to but at the end when it feels like and might be a more appropriate word there? Um, Is that a choice of translation or something else? Uh, Yes, I have to say that's the first time I had that question, but it's a good one. (laughs) Um, The the prayer of the Our Father, as we know, uh, it was written in Greek, uh, that is the, the the language of the Gospels, and then later translated into Latin by Saint Jerome uh, in the year 400 A.D., and then uh, subsequently 
translated into our English language. So uh, the Greek there, um, the, when you're reading, especially ancient biblical Greek, some of the words can have more than one meaning. And uh, unlike the English, where uh, we're much, much more precise, in the ancient languages, there's a lot more latitude. So you can, it's the, uh, they make a distinction between uh, dynamic equivalence and formal correspondence when translating. Uh, dynamic equivalence is uh, when you're looking at the same um, meaning as opposed to formal correspondence where it's word for word. Uh, so for instance, when Jesus says, unless you hate your mother and hate your father, you can't be my disciple, we don't take that literally because we know in ancient Hebrew, they didn't have superlatives. So you couldn't say easily, you got to love God the most. Uh, so you used hyperbole as Jesus did for that. And yet we also believe, just because, remember we just celebrated Corpus Christi uh, Sunday this weekend, when he says, this is my body, this is my blood, you must eat my flesh. My flesh is real food. We take that literally. So that's why you need a church, a magisterium, to authentically interpret these things. So with the Our Father, there have been uh, a number of, of, of translations, and I know um, you know, the Italian even got a little tweaking by uh, Pope Francis. So um, it's not a once-done <laughs> slam dunk there, I, I hate to say. God bless you, Tyler. We appreciate the call today. Next up is Harvey, another first-time caller in Columbus, Ohio, listening on St. Gabriel Radio. Harvey, you're on with Father John Tregilio. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm hearing about this, um, oh, something in solida solidarity, solidarity uh, that's taking place. And I wonder how it relates uh, to the magisterium and it seems to be having a, a progressive bent to it. I've been reading about it in the National Catholic Register. Yes, uh, the word I think you're looking for is synodality. Um, that, that is a particular concept, um, you know, and this isn't new, although, you know, Pope Francis is one that's been using it the most, but there have always been synods, and those are basically gatherings of bishops. It can be a, a local, you can have a diocesan synod where the bishop uh, has all the people of the diocese come together. It could be a, a national or international synod, and the Pope can call what they call a universal synod. Many times, like with Pope John Paul uh, the Great, he would have a synod in preparation for, for something, like the celebration of the year on the Eucharist or uh, the year on the priesthood. And so the synod is different from an ecumenical council. An ecumenical council has the full weight of the magisterium uh, and is infallible uh, when it is um, signed off by the Roman pontiff on particular uh, decrees, like with the Council of Nicaea uh, that uh, condemned Arianism, uh, the Council of Chalcedon, the, uh, the Council of Ephesus that said Mary could be called Mother of, of God, the Council of Trent. Uh, an ecumenical council is one of the highest. Uh, we also have... Uh, ex-cathedra uh, pronouncements of the Roman pontiff, like when Pius IX declared the Immaculate Conception or Pius XII with the Assumption. A synod does not have the same magisterial weight to it. It's always in preparation for. So when people are, are getting a, a bit nervous and that, I say to them, just wait, because synods are preparatory. Synods do not enjoy uh, the fullness of the, of the teaching authority. That's reserved to the bishop's 
gathered together around the world with the Roman pontiff, or the Pope can do this on his own from an ex-Catholic. We also have the ordinary magistery, which is something that's been consistently taught through the ages by the Pope and the bishop. So basically a synod is a gathering. It's a meeting that we always hear about the what's going on in Germany, and you know there it, there is a cause for concern and worry. Uh, I'm on the same page with, with that concern, but they're not, they, they cannot undo what's already been defined. So there's going to be no changes uh, in, the, in the catechism. They're not going to add sacraments re- or uh, retract them. That doesn't mean there aren't some people who would like to do that. Um, yeah, they're there, and, but they're, they're barking up the wrong tree if they think they can do this through the Senate. Thank you, Harvey. We appreciate the call. That opens up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Tom is in Twinsburg, Ohio, listening on The Rock in Cleveland. And, Tom, I think you have a question about Father Tregilio's ancestry. (laughs) Oh, um, yes. What were the Nephilim? Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. Someone's gonna get the quinquavia here, not from Aquinas. Okay, the Nephilim. All right, the Nephilim are these giants who are described in the Old Testament. Uh, there's a lot of the jury's out on who they are. Um, you know, the references to them uh, was like they were the um, alleged offspring of when um, angels, fallen angels, would have relations with uh, human beings. They were half angelic, half human. Uh, that's never been official teaching of the church, um, but certainly um, uh, in the Jewish um, Talmud um, and some of the Midrashes, uh, folklore, uh, this idea that the Nephilim uh, were these giants, and they could have been, I read somewhere, they could have been descendants of the Neanderthals because Homo sapiens, human beings like you and me, we did not descend from uh, the Neanderthals, we were um, closely related in one sense, but uh, the science has now been showing that they're distinct. So rather than saying, oh, well, we were Fred Flintstone at one time and then now, now we're not, um, know that they were, uh, that they, if they existed, they would have died out. But uh, their origins are very murky. Uh, they are mentioned, like I said, in the uh, Old Testament. Um, some even po- propose that someone like Goliath, uh, who uh, David slew uh, in the Old Testament could have been one of the Nephilim, but uh, there's nothing doctrinal about it other than they're referenced uh, sp- uh, sparsely in the Old Testament. Thanks, Tom. We appreciate the phone call. Did you just threaten me with physical violence? On I'm, I'm Italian. <laughs> you know, you know who would threaten somebody with physical violence over something like that? Saint Nicholas, a Nephilim. <laughs> <laughs> Eight three three two eight eight EWTN. I know where you live. It's our toll free number. Eight three three two eight eight three nine eight. I don't know where you live. I can't keep up with you for your schedule, so you're safe. Um, if you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still like to talk with you. That number is one two zero five. Two seven one two nine eight five. Colette is in Dayton, Ohio, another first-time caller listening at EWTN.com. Colette, you're on with Father Tregilio. Yes, Father Tregilio. I would like to thank you and Father Ken for your show. I love the show. We've been watching it for years. Please keep it on. 
Thank you. My question, my question to you is, I like to go to different churches when there's an adoration after Mass, and I have noticed that some priests will end after the prayer, after communion, and then they start adoration. And some priests will give you the final blessing, go in peace, and then they will say, now we're going to prepare the altar for that. Okay, Colette, hang on the line. We're going to get to the answer to that question. We'll also talk to Susan in Mechanicsburg, PA, and Clem in the Bronx, and we've got plenty of time for your phone calls as well, 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. A couple of open lines for you at 833-288-3986. We're talking to Colette in Dayton, Ohio, and Father, he wants to know if a priest should give a final blessing if adoration is going to follow Mass. Yes, uh, it is preferred. The rubric state that would should happen is uh, after the, the prayer after communion, there is no final blessing. The Blessed Sacrament is put in the monstrance on the altar, and then reverence and adoration is given. And this is what's supposed to be done, particularly there's going to be an extended time of adoration. Um, they don't want to have benediction just immediately after Mass. Uh, you want some time of private prayer or afford people the opportunity uh, to pray before the Blessed Sacrament. I know it had been a custom in some parishes, particularly on Sunday, uh, right after the, the at the last Mass on the afternoon, the priest would, would have benediction. But what they're asking um, in the rubrics now is that if you're going to do it after Mass, uh, there is no final blessing, and then you put the Blessed Sacrament. Now, I know some churches, they don't follow that. Uh, the priest does, does the final blessing. Uh, then you should have a little gap of time. You know, maybe the priest could go back to the sacristy, um, change into the cope, and that, and then proceed with. Uh, but if it's going to be right back to back, you should do it the right way, especially if you're going to do like Corpus Christi, um, uh, parish 40 hours. Uh, that is the preferred uh, way of doing it. Thanks, Claire. That's a great question today on Open Line Monday. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Susan is in Mechanicsburg, PA, listening on Holy Family Radio. Susan, you are on with Father John. Uh, Hello, Father. Thank you for taking my call. Here's my question. We as Catholics celebrate uh, the Passover on a Thursday, but that is not what the Jewish people would have done. How do you reconcile that practice with ours today? Uh, Well, uh, our belief is that, you know, the the Passover, Jesus celebrated the Last Supper uh, at the Passover time, and you know, there's always the theologians have been having discussions on exactly what time of day. Um, you know, it's the Paschal mystery. So, remember, in the Jewish custom, once it's sundown, it's the next day. And so, some were trying to say that, well, was this on Wednesday? Uh, well, if the sun's down, then it's Thursday. Um, the Passover meal um, 
to be precisely celebrated at a particular time. Like when we have, even look at the Catholic, when we say midnight mass is going to be celebrated at 10, 10 p.m. It's not midnight, but we're, we're using the contemporary uh, usage now. So we have pretty confident that Jesus celebrated the Last Supper uh, before the, the uh, crucifixion, which was the next day, um, precisely at what time, um, you know, that's uh, up for a debate. But, uh, um, you know, the Jewish Passover, remember, too, uh, every family did it separately. This was not the celebration that was taking place in the temple itself. This was done in the upper room, and there was a lot more leeway, just as there is today. Uh, if you're at home and you're going to have an Advent wreath, you know, uh, you don't have to light it at 6 p.m. You don't have to light it at 9 p.m. Uh, so uh, in the individual celebration of the Passover, uh, the Seder meal, you got a lot more um, you know, latitude with that. Does that help, Susan, at all? Um, well, somewhat. Thank you for taking my question. Oh, you're very welcome. We appreciate the call today. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. John writes in, I often hear that the proclamations of Catholic councils are infallible and irreformable. If that's the case, how do you explain the contradiction between the Council of Florence and Vatican II regarding the possibility of salvation outside the Catholic Church? Florence states in paragraph 714, but also Jews and heretics and schismatics cannot become participants in eternal life, whereas Vatican II in Nostra Aetate says, yet the Jews should not be spoken of as rejected or a curse, which speaks for Rome. Well, we have to remember um, the ecumenical councils, each particular uh, dogma has to be signed off by the Roman pontiff, and so it's not just a generic, the whole council, uh, each particular document, like uh, with, with the Council of Trent, there's seven sacraments, no more, no less. Uh, the church is teaching that, uh, read uh, Dominus Jesus, um, which gives a wonderful contemporary explanation of the fact that, yes, the church is necessary for salvation. Everyone is saved, who is saved, is saved through Christ and through the Catholic Church. But some people may not realize that. So as long as it's the, the, the provision is who through no fault of theirs... So that you can be a non-Catholic and in good faith uh, live a good life. Uh, we believe that God is not going to uh, prevent you from going to heaven as long as you did not overtly, consciously, deliberately, freely reject Christ and his church. And so it's what we call invincible ignorance. Um, it's part of the universal salvific will of God. Uh, it's not universalism that everyone is de facto going to heaven, but that the mercy of God, even St. Thomas Aquinas talks about, uh, you know, we have baptism of water, baptism of blood, but also baptism of desire, and there's implicit desire in which we believe, and that's where the Second Vatican Council is talking about, but again, read Dominus Jesus. It's a contemporary um, document. Uh, Cardinal Ratzinger uh, is, is the author of it. It was uh, issued under the authority of Pope John Paul, and it makes it all clear. And, and, you know, the, it, it should be stated, right, Father, that, that the Church's position is that all salvation comes from the Catholic Church. It doesn't say all salvation comes from being a card-carrying member of the Catholic right. Church. Yeah, Father Feeney got into big trouble for that. Uh, <laughs> 
Because, like I said, if if you can you can be saved through the church and not realize you're being saved through the church, if it's not your fault that you don't know that. The only people who are culpable are the ones who study, you know, look at what the church teaches and says, I reject that. I repute it, okay? There's the ones in trouble. But just because you were born on the part of the world where, you know, there was no Catholics, there was no church, uh, no one evangelized you. Fulton J. Sheen often said, it's not that most people reject the church, they reject what they think is the church. It's their erroneous opinions. Because how many people believe that we as Catholics worship Mary? But we don't. If we did, then they would be right. But we don't, so they're wrong. I often tell people, I agree with you. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Catholics shouldn't worship Mary. I agree with you. 100%. <laughs> uh, Sandra's next up. She's in the great state of Illinois listening on the EWTN app. Sandra, you're on with Father John Tregilio. Hi there. How are all of you doing today? I hope you're blessed. We Thank are. You. What's your question today? Yeah, so I um, live uh, near a Franciscan, uh, a church with three Franciscan priests, and love the church, but I'm disturbed a little bit because the pastor, who's fairly new, doesn't seem to like to wear his Franciscan habit. I mean, we had an in-house parish retreat right in the church. It was a lecture. He was in street clothes and came to Mass the other day, was doing Mass with you know, the, the priest's clothing, but underneath he had a bright red shirt on. And I just, I'm just confused if it's normal, because I'm a secular, and I don't really understand why he wouldn't wear his clothing, or maybe it's not really required, and I don't want to be critical of him, because I actually like him quite a bit, but I just, I'm just disturbed by that. So I wanted clarification on what the rules were. Yes, uh, each or religious order is different. Some are very strict and mandate that they wear the religious garb. Uh, the sad thing is some, some of the, the religious who don't wear it you know, they, they've got good intentions, but, uh, you know, the witness value, as you say, um, when you go to Italy, um, you see the Franciscans, Dominicans, uh, Benedictines, uh, all these orders uh, in their habit. Um, when I was growing up, it was rare to see unless they were uh, cloistered or, you know, they were in a, a friary that had a lot of, um, of mendicants in there. But the witness value of seeing the habit um, I would say, rather than putting the guy on the spot and saying, you know, Father, why don't you wear your habit? Say, Father, you know, um, I think it'd be great if, if, if you wore it a little bit more often, okay? Uh, it, it, it'd be a conversation because a lot of young people want to know. Um, I remember the first time I went to EWTN, uh, we went with um, some of the Franciscan friars, uh, and then Mother Angelica and two of the sisters joined us. We went to dinner in a very secular restaurant, Everybody's eyeballs were on us, but a lot of people came up and said, what's this all about? It was an opportunity to explain, you know, I don't know if we got any converts that day, but uh, sure, you got some stares and glances, but you also had people saying, wow, you know, uh, they respect it. In the same way, when you see a Jewish man wearing his yarmulke, um, you know, I, I say, I praise the, their, their faith that they're willing to externalize it. And so instead of saying to them, why don't you? Say, Father, you know, could you possibly wear it a little bit more often? Because I think, you know, there's this idea that, well, we want to be approachable, we want to be available, we don't want to turn people off. But the habit doesn't do that, you know. Uh, you can hide behind the habit, and some guys hide behind the cassock, but at the same time, when people see a priest in his collar or in his cassock, you know, they, they ask questions, 
and they're edified when he's behaving himself and scandalized when he's not. Does he ever wear it, Sandra? Yes, he does. It, it does. It seems to be random. That's when I would have. That's when I would approach him. I would approach him when he has it on. Yeah, and I would say it is so edifying to oh, me yeah. when you're in your habit. <laughs> that's great. Thumbs up. <laughs> keep it. Keep it up. Love the outfit. That's what I would tell him. <laughs> Honestly, I don't want to be critical because I don't think it's my place. I, I love my priests, even if they're not always correct. Because who am I to talk about being correct? You know. Yeah. Listen, but Father. I, Father, I don't know what your opinion here, but it, it, it's almost a, a corporal work of mercy at this point to point something like this out because the fact of the matter is uh, religious orders in habits are growing and religious orders in secular clothing are dying, and that's just the facts. Absolutely, and, and I think it's how you do it. If you come off accusatory and say, why aren't you wearing your habit, then you've already started on the wrong foot. Absolutely. You say, Father, like you said, while he's in his house, say, Father, keep it up. Could you wear it a little bit more often? Uh, you might get some vocations to your community. You will be edifying the parish. When he gets positive uh, response to wearing the habit, that will speak more volumes than the negative uh, comments he gets when he doesn't. How's that, Sandra? Thank you so much. I, I just, you know, he used to be a missionary, and I just thought maybe it was because missionaries don't necessarily have to wear them, and, and maybe because he was hot, you know? Yeah, I don't want to, I'm not going to be critical. Yeah, no, they wear them in the Sahara. <laughs> the only place I, I remember some nuns down at the National Shrine in D.C., uh, they were from Poland when the communists wouldn't allow them. So that was part of their, when they started their order. That's why when you see them down in Washington, they don't have, the, they don't have a veil because of that. But that's how they were formed. Uh, the rest of the sisters, the brothers, um, you know, the friars, they've got a habit, and, and I... You know, I'm edifying myself when I see that. God bless you, Sandra. Thanks so much for the phone call today. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Be sure to join us for the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass live from Our Lady of the Angels Chapel every single morning at 7 a.m. Central Time, 8 a.m. Eastern Time, every day but Good Friday right here on EWTN television and radio. Um, Misty writes in, she's, she's sending this from her iPhone greetings, and she says, I've read several stories about popes openly enjoying alcoholic beverages such as wine and even whiskey. As I understand, even other religious leaders in the church openly enjoy such beverages. However, how do religious leaders justify drinking in this way when they consider 1 Timothy 5.23, where Timothy is apparently an abstainer? If you can get into the minds of popes, and indeed, if you yourself enjoy a pint or two, how can this be justified? It's, it's, the, it's the virtue of moderation, temperance, uh, knowing how much, how little, when. Um, Jesus turned water into wine and was alcoholic wine uh, because the wine steward said, this is the best I've ever, I've ever drank. If it was not, some people were trying to make, he, it was grape juice. The wine steward would have detected that, okay? He knows the difference between wine and grape juice. Uh, it's the abuse of alcohol. Some people can never should never have it because they have a low tolerance, they have a proclivity for alcoholism or health issues. Uh, other people, they can handle it, but they have to know when to say, I've had enough. There's nothing intrinsically evil or sinful in alcohol itself, uh, but you have to know uh, when to say, I've had enough, 
or to say to your friend, you know, maybe you ought to just step back. Uh, you, you've had enough already. Uh, but for the social aspect, again, you know, even like we go back to the Seder meal, someone asked uh, a few minutes ago, uh, they would drink wine uh, at the Seder meal. Um, I know, you know, there was a concern with little children. Uh, it's just a very small amount. Um, so I don't, you know, we don't uh, teach that as, as Catholic teaching that all alcohol is to be stayed unless you've got an issue with it uh, uh, biologically or you've got uh, an addiction issue to it. Ralph would like to know, how do I explain baptism to a non-Catholic? They believe you should not be baptized at birth, rather when you're old enough to be baptized. I get into a lot of disagreements with non-Catholics at work, although always respectively disagree. Well, I use the same argument I did with my cousin, who said to me, oh, I'm going to let my kids choose for themselves, so I'm not going to have them baptized in case they want to change religions. I said, well, follow that logic to its conclusion. If, you don't, if you're not going to impose a religion on them by, not ha- by having them baptized, then don't give them a name. Why are you forcing a name on them? Just call them son, kid, hey you, and then let them choose a name for themselves. Obviously, that makes no sense. Um, say to the government, I don't want my kid to have citizenship until he or she's old enough to realize it. Of course not. You want them to have an identity, and if they want to, they can legally apply, change their name, uh, renounce their citizenship, and God forbid if someone's baptized a Catholic Christian, they can repudiate if they want, but they start with identity. So the name you gave them, their first name, their last name, their citizenship were all thrown at them, and they can choose to abandon that, but they need something. They need an anchor, and the same way with baptism, because we read in the scripture, whole house uh, was baptized, not just mom and dad, all the adults, all the children, and all the benefits that accrue there, which, why would you want to deny to uh, children uh, the grace that's available through the sacraments? Um, Still time for your calls. If you give us a call right now, we can probably squeeze you in. The number is 833-288-EWTN. It's a free telephone call anywhere in North America, 833-288-3986. Michelle would like to know, I would like to ask about not being able to get to Mass on Sunday. On Saturday, on Saturday, there was a powerful windstorm that knocked out power, and I was prepared to go, but then it seemed unsafe due to debris in the air and on the roads and dark roads due to no power. I also couldn't get there on Sunday due to work. There were no late evening Masses offered on either day. Am I in mortal sin because I didn't go to Mass? No. If you're unable to go because of the weather or circumstances beyond your control, uh, your obligation to attend Mass is only operative if you're able to get to Mass, all right? Um, what happens is uh, someone's culpable if they go somewhere else, oh, they go shopping, uh, they, you know, they went to a restaurant, they just went to another place. That would then say, yeah, you are guilty of uh, you know, missing Mass. But if someone's, let's say you're a mother and you're taking care of a sick child and you can't leave that child alone, you can't take that child to to church because they're ill, you're dispensed because you're taking care of that sick child. Or if you yourself have health issues, you know, during the time of the pandemic, uh, the the bishops uh, told everybody, but even if the bishop doesn't do that, if you are seriously sick that you can't leave the house for any reason or for most reasons other than going to the hospital 
or going to the drugstore to get some medicine, your obligation to go to Mass all right, is suspended uh, at that moment because of the condition either you're having or someone that you care for is having. Um, you know, how many times has been flood or hurricane, tornadoes? People just can't get there. And like you mentioned, you know, things are flying in the air, uh, debris, uh, earthquakes. You're not guilty of, of missing mass if you can't get there. It's only when people, it's because they slept in, they're too lazy, or they went somewhere else and their, their priorities are askew. Uh, Kiki's watching us on YouTube, and she says, Hi, Father John. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 5, Jesus instructs his disciples not to go to pagan and Samaritan territories. Why is that? Well, you know, this is in the beginning of their mission. And in the beginning, they were to preach uh, the good news uh, to the children of Abraham. And that's how it started, and then it branched out. After Pentecost, when they received the Holy Spirit, is when they started going out to the four corners of the earth, and they went into the pagan territories. But before they could do that, they had to first give, uh, give the opportunity, preach to uh, the Hebrew people, and then later uh, it would branch out. Uh, Janet is another first-time caller. She's in St. Louis, Missouri, listening on Covenant Radio. Janet, you're on with Father John. Hi, thank you for taking my call. I was wondering if we can pray for the intercession of loved ones that have died but won't be um, being cantonized as saints. Yes, if, if your loved one's in heaven or in purgatory, we call the communion of saints means they can pray for us, intercede for us, as much as a canonized saint. The only people that cannot do that are the ones in hell. But a living person, a deceased person, uh, if they're in purgatory or in heaven, can pray for us, intercede for us, uh, as we say. Um, they do not have to be canonized in order to do that. Canonization merely means that miracles have been established and the church says, yes, this person is eligible uh, for public uh, veneration, not adoration, but public veneration uh, as a saint. They get a holy day and, and all that. But grandma and grandpa, if they're up in heaven or if they're in purgatory, they can pray uh, for you, for me. And if they're in purgatory, I, I should obviously pray for, for them as well. Thanks, Janet. We appreciate that phone call today. Chike is watching on YouTube and says, Dear Father, please, what should be our attitude or approach to vengeful psalms? Such psalms are not really in line with the teaching of Jesus. Should we continue praying such psalms? Well, I, that's, the question is, how are you doing this? Because the, what we call the deprecatory psalms or the curse psalms are in the Bible. They're considered inspired text. Uh, they're part of Revelation. Uh, but if you notice, we, they're not in the Liturgy of the Hours. They're not in the Breviary, the Divine Office. Um, I was mentioning this in one of my classes to the seminarians said sometimes the curse psalms re uh, reflect on what you feel and obviously they're you know that's genuine but your your intention is not that you uh, get vengeance on your enemies that you want them to squirm or as we say in italian schiat and gorp all right uh that's not good but if you're saying i i in this right now i'm not in a happy place um my enemies are are overwhelming me um, when you're reading those psalms, when you're praying those psalms, the goal is not retaliation. 
It's just honesty that, yes, this is what I feel. I need to move beyond this, though, uh, because the, the cursed psalms do not exist in and of themselves. They are connected to all the other psalms. Yaroslav writes in, hi, from Ukraine. How are Ooh. you? How can I pray for priest, for the priests? Oh, well, first of all, we're praying for you uh, and for all the, all the Ukraine um, how you can pray for priests but every what, day. He's in a unique situation of being a powerful intercessor. Absolutely. Um, pray for the priests there in the Ukraine. Pray for the priests here uh, in the United States and around the world. That we be better priests. Um, that we would always, every day, seek to be better priests. Um, nobody's got it made until the day you, know, you die and the Lord calls you home. Or uh, definitely for a particular judgment. Um, every priest can and should do better. And the same with every bishop, cardinal, and pope. We can always improve. So pray for that, that the priests would always be faithful to their vows, to their promises of obedience, celibacy, and if they're religious, poverty and chastity. Uh, that they offer the sacraments with reverence as well as validly and licitly. But just pray that more of us be the priests we should be. And pray for the ones who aren't, that they repent because, you know, you're a priest forever, and, you know, um, Judas could have repented, and Jesus would have taken him back. He took Peter back, but Judas did not go that route. So how many, you know, uh, potential Peters do we have there? You know, if people didn't pray, they would end up as Judas. And finally today, Liam from Ireland would like to know if you know the origin of the Hail Holy Queen prayer, who composed it, or was it given by Our Lady? Oh, the Hail Holy Queen, the Salve Regina. Yes. Um, yeah, it, it's not from Our Lady. Um, I know that this, the memoir is St. Bernard of Clairvaux, but I can't tell you without doing some more research. Uh, the Salve Regina, it is an ancient hymn uh, that's part of the Liturgy of the Hours. Yes, I don't think Our Lady would have written Hail Holy Queen. <laughs> no. <laughs> Father, would you leave us with a blessing? Benedica vos omnipotens Deus Pater et Filius et Spiritus Sanctus. Amen. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father John Tregilio, our producer Charles Beery, call screener Matt Kubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in. Back at it tomorrow with Father Wade Menezes talking faith, family, and fellowship. Until we get together then, God bless. <laughs>